The title that I gave to this sermon is Authored by God, and at the end of the sermon, I'll circle back around as to why I titled it that, Authored by God. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, rams and, and, and goats this morning, and, and lots of horns, which we know when, when you're studying in Daniel, horns mean kings and power and strength. Uh, but over and against all of that, we are going to be beholding the glory of our sovereign God. That is the theme that echoes throughout. And the theme that I gave to this journey through Daniel is settled in the sovereignty of our God. Settled in God's sovereignty. And so let's begin here. We'll start with the conquering ram. Uh, rams and goats and, and, and lots of horns. Uh, first, we start with a ram. Who has sheep here, Glenn? I know you guys have sheep. Anyone else have, have sheep? Okay. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll learn more about these as we uh, move through. We'll have to talk to Glenn. If you want to know more about sheep, uh, they're not always nice. Okay. The goats, that's a whole other thing, but you'll see. Verses 1 through 4. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, that is Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So this is a second of these four final visions that we're journeying through in the latter half of the book of Daniel. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital. That is that fortified city, um, the citadel, as it were, um, in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal, which is a very specific place. So he recognizes the location, and it's prominent here uh, in the sense that currently, as he has this vision, this is under Babylonian Empire rule. So this area uh, is currently a Babylonian stronghold, but not for long, not for long. So this is the, the point. This location is significant as he sees himself there. I don't think he was actually there. I think he's seeing this in the vision, and this is where he finds himself. And he says this, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, the Ulai Canal. And it had two horns, and both were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. So all of a sudden, we're we're beginning to kind of put things together here. This sounds familiar, right? These kind of repeat revelations that God gives through Daniel. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So here we have a ram. This is a male sheep with some monstrous horns, one higher than the other, and uh, we learn down in verse 21, as you uh, consider the, the, the interpretation of this, very specifically, this is, by the angel's uh, clarity here, this is Media and Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, which, remember, um, we've had Nebuchadnezzar, and now he's under the reign of Belshazzar, this, this godless pagan man, and Daniel is basically an afterthought at this point. He's been kicked aside. And he has been given these visions by God. And I think there's a sense in which he feels so honored to receive these visions himself, personally. Medo-Persia would come and they would sweep to the south, certainly in Susa. They would take that city and they would move to the west 
which is where the heart of the Babylonian Empire was, and they would completely take it over with ease. It was nearly a bloodless revolution. It was not a hard victory for the Medes and the Persians. Now, the Medes came in strong at first, but the Persians rose to a higher place of prominence, and that is Cyrus. So Darius and Cyrus are the two horns in view, Cyrus being the latter but higher horn, who then took more prominent role in power, and they dominated. There, there, was, there was absolute victory and dominance in this, as we've seen in previous chapters. Overpowering strength and dominion. Now, who brought this to pass? Ultimately, as always, God did. That's the reminder. Whenever nations are changed and kingdoms um, sweep over other kingdoms, God is at hand in those big things and in the small things. All of the significant moments, God is overseeing, He is sovereign over, and He gives this victory to Darius and to Cyrus. And we know that it's under Cyrus's rule that God's people begin to find relief from their exile and return to the land, the beautiful land, as it were. Now, let's talk about goats. Who's, who's ever had a run-in with a wrathful goat? Have you? When I was a kid, man, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, Lincoln, yeah, okay. When I was a kid, my, my best friend, uh, they had a goat, and this goat was mean. I'm just, he was not nice. And if you found yourself in the fence with this goat, he would spot you and he would charge with everything that he had. And if you couldn't clear the fence before he got to you, it was lights out, right? Have you ever looked closely at goats? They are one of the most fascinating creatures of God. Their eyes, pretty freaky, honestly. That's just weird. Their eyes are weird. Now, they can be really fun. We've had goats. My dad had goats uh, for a while, and they're so fun. They crawl up all over you, and, and uh, they can be really fun. They can also be insanely freaky. Um, some of the videos that go around online, right? They're just weird goats. Uh, have you seen the fainting goats? Those are fun. We should get one. Put them in the back. Have them mow the grass for us. There's more stories about goats I could tell, but ask me later, okay? Verse 5, the wrathful goat. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. So we're, we're in Susa, and he looks and he sees from way out west a goat that comes across the face of the whole earth without touching the grain. We're talking speed here. He is moving. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, one horn. And he came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in powerful wrath. Now, this historically has shown to be true. Um, one of the things you see here is as the Greek empire began to assert its dominance, it was a vengeful, wrathful, incredibly um, overwhelming force, um, such that as these Persian troops tried to defend, they fell by the thousands. They didn't understand how they could be so good. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. And he struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled 
on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. The goat kills the ram. And this is a vicious, violent thing that that Daniel watches unfold in this vision. So at this point, we're kind of like, okay, what's going on? You've got a a, a sheep getting killed by a goat. No, welcome to prophecy. That's what this is, right? Certainly metaphorical in nature, these images represent nations and kings. The king that is most in view, in fact, I would suggest that most of chapter 8 has as its emphasis Greece. It it is at uh, the the, the Greece empire taking over the Medo-Persian empire. So Medo-Persia is the ram here in chapter 8. Greece is the goat. And as uh, Alexander the Great would probably say, that's right, I am the goat, right? The greatest of all time. He, He carries the name great in his title to this day. Let's learn a bit about this horn, this incredibly conspicuous one-horned goat who is in view. I believe history would show very clearly this is Alexander the Great. few things about this man that are significant. He was privately tutored as a young man by Aristotle himself. Okay, so when you think Greek, we're, we're talking massive amount of cultural heritage here. From 13 to 16, under Aristotle's tutelage, he left home in charge of Macedonia at age 16. Think of this. He became king of Macedonia when he was 20 years old, when his father was killed. He was poisoned. His father was poisoned. And then all of a sudden, Alexander finds himself ruling over Macedonia, okay? Now, his father had previously united Macedonia uh, in, in just a really incredible way, and Leveraging that unity, Alexander goes on a conquest, and he sets out basically to conquer the known world. And he does rapidly and decisively, he conquers in less than 10 years the entire known world, and by the way, remained undefeated, never lost a battle. He never had to call for retreat. It, that's just mind-blowing. There was animosity among the Greeks toward the Persians, and when they came, they came with a major chip on their shoulder. They came in ferocious warriors. And uh, there was one battle where it was like 35,000 with Alexander and around 100,000 Persian troops, and he swept them. It was decisive destruction. He sought to Hellenize every part of his kingdom. Now, This is significant as well. You think of Hellenization historically and the cultural infusion of the Greeks into most of the known world. I mean, it it reached into all kinds of things, and it lingered all the way through the Roman Empire. That's why we see a lot of times Greco-Roman Empire. the, The echo of that was woven deeply into Rome itself all the way through and continues to shape, even today, our culture. This was accomplished by God in less than 10 years, such that by the time Alexander was 30 years old, he had conquered the world. He grieved that there was nowhere else to fight and conquer. He did it. Culture, religion, philosophy. You think of uh, Plato, Aristotle, um, all of these these great thinkers of old, these philosophers, um, 
the world of entertainment, a lot of the, the way that the Romans conducted this entertainment thing carried on this Greek infusion. The Olympic Games, right, began in Greece, and then it carried out through all of these things. Rome really kind of perfected that, that games mentality that Greek brought in. And then to stop and think, just, just think of in history of how the Lord is at work. He raises up Alexander the Great and brings in the Greek language to be the shared common language of the known world, such that when the Bible was at its, at its peak being written in the New Testament days, it was written in Koine Greek. And to this day, as we study the Bible, we go back to the, the Greek in the New Testament. Think of how that was used by God to rapidly advance the Word of God to be spread to the known world. All of this ties back to Alexander the Great, the goat, the one-horned goat. Now, amazingly enough, Alexander was 33 when he died in a drunken stupor. There's a lot of mystery about how he died, but I believe he died at the hand of God. God took him out. It wasn't an arrow. It wasn't a sword. It wasn't a loss in battle. It was his own depravity in a drinking contest that led to this paralysis where I think they, they, they thought he was dead, and yet he was still somehow comatose and alive, and his body did not decay. What was it, six or seven days? And then they're finally like, well, I guess we just take him out and bury him. And off he went. That's how he died. Listen to how this unfolds. Here's, here's a map of his massive victories and the kingdom, the journey that he went on from over there in Greece all the way through Asia Minor, down into Egypt, through Israel, and then back up through Mesopotamia, down through Babylon, out into Persia, all the way around, over to the border of India, right? And then back up, taking all of those cities, the wealth of the world he consolidated. Alexandria to this day remains his, uh, his Egyptian stronghold, the city he founded that carries his name. Alexander the Great was truly a remarkable warrior, uh, maybe the most um, effective leader and commander of an army in the history of mankind. How? Why? Ultimately, not because Alexander was great, but because God chose to raise him up and let him move victoriously across the known world to lay things in place, and then at 33, took him out. The goat became exceedingly great, and when he is strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So we have now the great horn, Alexander, taken out at age 33, and now four Four horns grow up, and I've mentioned previously, these are the four generals that took command and, uh, and four kind of areas of the known world that they ruled over. We'll get back to that significant point here in a few minutes. So four generals divide the empire. Now let's look at the next uh, person that comes up in view. This is uh, someone who's going to be coming up again in future chapters, 
in different ways. The trampling little horn. So, verse 9. Out of one of them, that is out of one of the four conspicuous horns on this goat, same goat, Greece, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land. Now, when you see that in the scriptures, what are we talking about? We're talking about the land of Israel. We're talking about Jerusalem, right? The chosen glorious land. So, this is Antiochus IV, who gave himself the title Epiphanes, which means God manifest. This was his view of himself. He saw himself as God, and he consolidated his power and basically became a a maniacal pre-Hitler, pre-Antichrist, prefiguring the horrors of the tribulation that is to come. Listen to some of the things that went down. This horn, this little horn, grew up quickly to the host of heaven and caused some of the host, that is the the people of God, and some of the stars, that's the leaders of God, to fall to the earth. It trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. In, In his mind, he was great. He was as if he was God himself. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary, that is God's sanctuary, was thrown down. And then it adds, on account of transgression, the host, that is the transgression of God's people, under intense persecution, they begin to conform. They begin to try to cave and and, and blend in and, and compromise, and God brings discipline for that, and so there's more The host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Prosper. I chose the New American Standard translation on these verses because I felt like it was easier to see a more literal reading of these things. It can be confusing uh, a little in the ESV. This is a nightmare scenario that is going to unfold. And remember, as Daniel is hearing this vision and understanding this, we're talking hundreds of years. By the time, uh, I mean, it's over 200 years before Alexander the Great's even born. Now we're talking about generals that follow and then on down from there. So we are way out in history by the time we get to Antiochus Epiphanes. It's fairly universal that commentators and, and students of the Scriptures Agreed, this is indeed Antiochus Epiphanes in view, being foretold hundreds of years before he is even on the scene. Antiochus Epiphanes, 215 to 154 B.C. Remember that that Daniel is writing in the 500s, right? Mid-500s. So we're talking a long time before this happens. He is a Seleucid king. That was one of the generals that was given charge over this area, which he came out of. He violently imposed Greek culture and slaughtered scores of Jews. Often, as I study this man, I can't help but think of Hitler, right? Hitler took it to a whole other level, but this man certainly falls into that category. It was an awful season of bloodshed. He outlawed circumcision. He wanted to basically eradicate Jewish religion and lifestyle. He outlawed the worship of Yahweh, He demanded that Jews worship Zeus. He forced pork down the throats of Jews. 
and all who resisted, he slaughtered. Think, think of what, this is, this is bringing, um, you know, Hellenism to another level. It wasn't just, you know, you can worship your God in the context of these things. No, it is you will worship Zeus. This Greek mythology is imposed in, in a militant way. He murdered and replaced the high priest with a man named Jason who was just a poser. Think of how corrupted the whole system became. He plundered the temple of sacred items for his own use and then he profaned. He profaned the temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar of God in worship of Zeus. These are moments where you're just like, how is it? that lightning did not consume this man. But for the fact that this was ordained by God, foretold to Daniel in in, in advance, you would assume a man doing these kinds of things would be instantly struck down. But he succeeded. He advanced. He experienced incredible success as Jewish blood flowed. One of the darkest chapters of Jewish history. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and a holy one said to the other one, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate? And the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot, the host being God's people. How long? One angel asks another angel. And here's the response. For 2,300 evenings and mornings... That's days. We're talking days, just like Genesis language. There was evening and there was morning. We're talking days here. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Oh, good. This is good news. As bad as this news is, at least it's temporary. This is not the last word for God's people. This is a temporary. It's just over six years that this will last. And so you can retrace the beginning of this this great persecution by going back to the date that we know, that we, we got the exact date when the temple was cleansed and restored. How did that take place? It was the Maccabean Revolt. Look at this. The season of ruthless persecution finishes with Judas Maccabeus leading a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. We can be even more precise than that date-wise. He won, and he restored the temple Hanukkah each year looks back to celebrate this. Now, this is fascinating. These events take place in the intertestamental period, right? The 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New. Okay? So, this is not a, Hanukkah is not a celebration instituted by God in the Old Testament. And yet, it's very likely that Jesus celebrated this victory in his lifetime. Think of that. Antiochus went insane. That's how the world describes it, right? We, we know there's more. And he died at age 51 of sickness. Now it says in verse 25 that this man will be broken by no human hand. So it wasn't in the revolt that Antiochus was killed. It was at the hand of God that he was driven absolutely mad. And the final three years of his life, he was tormented and ill and died. Hmm. This is a dark, dark day 
for the Jewish people of God. Now, angelic assistance, we get some interpretation help here. This is an amazing uh, gift to Daniel, even though it, it overwhelms him at the first, which is pretty much the response most of the time when Gabriel shows up and, and talks with anybody. Uh, look at this. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. This is, this is every preacher's experience when they first read chapter 8 as well. They're like, Lord, help me now. I, I need some angelic help with this. Thankfully, we've got help. Behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And here comes Gabriel. He comes near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. You know what that is? He passed out. Daniel straight up lost it. It's one thing to be in the presence of an angel so magnificent, so intensely intimidating, to drop to your face. And then he speaks. And as he's speaking to Daniel, it's just he's overcome. So he's face down, face in the dirt, and he passes out. The imposing angel Gabriel. This is the, uh, the, the angel that came to, uh, uh, to Mary to announce God's favor and that she would be uh, with child, with the Messiah himself. Uh, this was also the, the angel that came to, what's his name? Zechariah, just before that, and uh, announcing uh, more wonderful news of God's work in this New Testament fulfillment. So, here's Daniel, face down, passed out. He's out cold, in the dirt. And Gabriel reached down and reaches down and touches him and made him stand up and said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media, that's Darius, and Persia, Cyrus, the goat is the king of Greece, that is, Alexander the Great. And the great horn between his eyes, the first king, that's, that's Alexander. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this Greek nation, right? But not with his power. Okay, now just consider this. When Alexander died at 33, everyone was shocked. No one saw that coming. And there wasn't a plan. There, there was like... We've got the entire known world here. What do we do? Just before he died, he became very paranoid about coups and power grabs. And uh, there was one of his generals, uh, uh, the son of a general, that tried to launch a coup. And so Alexander took the son and killed him and killed his dad, the general. So there's one less general. But there are more than four generals vying for the kingdom. And over the span, listen to this, of Roughly 20 years, they fought to sort out who is going to run this empire. There were five generals toward the end of that wrestling match, struggling and fighting and warring with one another. And at the end of that, the fifth general was killed, leaving four generals to divide the kingdom, which is what they did, and fulfill exactly what was predicted 
by God to Daniel. I heard someone say this past week, now, if history accounted that there was indeed five generals that divided the kingdom, we got a big problem. Not just with the trustworthiness of our Bible, but the sovereign ordination of our God. You see what I mean? We have prophetic precision here which gives us an authoritative confidence. Hundreds of years before Alexander is born, we have the great detail of what happens when he dies and the struggle to divide the kingdom. Now, these generals took control of these different regions, but it was not as great. The glory of of the Greek empire had faded with the death of Alexander the Great. So friends, there's another reason to trust your Bible. Another reason to trust the God who is sovereign over every single location, over every event. It's an amazing display of prophecy in detail, fulfilled hundreds of years after it was given. Now the bold-faced king, more about Antiochus here, but listen to these verses. Remember, I keep saying he prefigures the Antichrist. So this is not the little horn of chapter 7 that flows out of that fourth kingdom, that Roman uh, echo. This is the, the, the little horn that comes from the Greek empire, right, that grows out of that one of the, the, the four uh, horns of the divided kingdom. So, but it's not the Antichrist, but I think is prefiguring the Antichrist as you hear these descriptions. The latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. Now note that. One of the things that tells us is that that is a very real thing even in our day. Kings of pagan nations that reach power and wield power will oftentimes be endowed or, or given strength by Satan himself. Godlessness. Often I think of George Soros in these lights. The, the kind of devastation that man is wreaking in all kinds of places. That is straight up dark. It's evil. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, Antiochus here, And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Now, that is also true of the one who is to come. So we're not just looking back here. We're also seeing very clear descriptions of, I believe, of the Antichrist to come. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper, and under his hand and in his own mind, this may be the best part of this, in his own mind he shall become great, giving himself the title Epiphanes. I am God manifest before you. What arrogance and pride to make himself equal with God. Without warning he shall destroy many, And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, that is God himself, the commander, as it were, of God's people. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So, 
He may think of himself as great. He can call himself God. He can say he is equal with God. And in an instant, he will be shattered by the God who is, who shares his glory with no one, broken by no human hand, driven insane and dying of sickness. This speaks to the already and the not yet. There is here very clear historical uh, documented history of how this went down. It is rough. It is brutal. It's, it's even hard to study some of these things. It was, it was terrible for the Jews in this period of time. And I think at the same time, it's foreshadowing a very dark story of what is going to unfold in the seven years of tribulation. Certainly the last three and a half years especially, the great tribulation. That is to come. Now, Daniel's response here, he is sickened and confused. Sickened and confused. Verse 26. The vision of the evenings and mornings has been told is true. The angel says now, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. So just a, a word on this. That doesn't mean make it secret, right? He's, he's receiving this vision. It's not written. It's not handed to him as a document. The, the call here is seal it up. Write it down. Preserve it. Keep it. It's important that God's people know this vision, that it be recorded. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I didn't understand it. Friends, there are days where I turn on the news and I have a similar thing. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? What are these people thinking? This is absolutely ludicrous. The decision making, the, the responses, the, the, the crime, the violence, the drugs, the, the judicial, judicial system that is just seeming to turn upside down. And like, what is the deal here? It's appalling, and it's confusing. I was struck by this. I lay sick for some days. Then I rose, and I went about the king's business. Now, he didn't get in the back room and sulk and say, woe is me, this is terrible, this is so bad, all I see is dark and evil. No, no. He felt the weight of it. He saw and he was appalled. And then he found a place to move forward, to trust God. Preserve these words and then persevere. That's the call. Receive them. Understand them. Why did God give this vision to Daniel? Why is it in our Bibles today? Friends, it's to remind us that he is sovereign. Even when things are at their worst, God is in control. And there is no king so imposing, so overwhelming, that God can't break that horn and take him out. Alexander the Great, his life ended at the hand of God at 33. Antiochus Epiphanes was driven insane and dead by 51. He was given room to run and not an inch farther. The purpose of God is accomplished even on dark days. 
So we go to our response this morning. How do, we, how do we process a chapter like this? The longer I sat in this chapter, the more I just kept coming back to this. It's authored by God. It's not just these words. Friends, history is authored by God. God doesn't just know how to predict history because He has binoculars and He looks through the corridors of time and He's like, oh, look at that. There's this really bad dude coming. I should mention that. No. He knows all things because he wrote the book. Like if you were talking to the author of a book at a book signing and you walk up and you're like, hey, do you know how it ends? What do you think he's going to say? Of course I know how it ends. I wrote the book. I wrote it. It's my story. History, every moment of history, the good, the bad, and the ugly is the story that God has ordained. That's why He knows it. That's why with precision He can predict it. Why is that good news? Well, it's good news because we know who God is. He is not a maniacal evil God. He's good. He is all wise. He is sovereign over all things. He's never out of control. Things have never spun out of His power. He is bringing to pass all His purpose in everything. And that means the good days and the hard days. Friends, that's a comfort for us. No matter how dark it gets, we know this is but for a time. I, just, I was just, just wrestling with this. Like, Lord, it seems like there's a lot of darkness. It seems like it goes a long time. And then I pulled back and I began to think about eternity. You know how long that is? I'm looking the wrong direction. This way, for you. Eternity, it doesn't end. Just think about this. No sin. No darkness. No more Satan. No more evil. No more fear. No more dread. No more murder. No more, no more bloodshed. Forever. We're right here in the dark. And we have all of this light awaiting us. It seems like it lasts forever to us, but friends, forever is what God sees. We don't. This present darkness is but for a time. And when He ordains it is over, it will be gone. History is authored by God, and it's a good story. Even though there are dark and evil days, it is a good story. And He will be glorified forever. I'm going to close by the answer of the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Listen to how it goes. The question is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death, Christian? What would you say? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Come what may, whatever you might face in this world. There's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful, underline that, circle that, my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has already paid for all of my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. I am no longer enslaved blinded, held captive. I'm free. 
He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way, remember this from the words of our Savior, that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Not a hair. One of the places we've seen that evidenced is the early chapters of Daniel. There was not a hair singed on any of those men. Not a bite mark at all on Daniel after he survived the night with the lions. If God so chooses, if, it, his, if it's His will, then we will be untouched in this world. He can do that. And if He so chooses, we die for His glory. We suffer and learn of His faithfulness. We hurt and groan and, and, and cry, Oh, come Lord Jesus, if, if that's the path He ordains, it is the best path for our good and for His glory. It is our comfort that we are His, and no matter what we face, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. And we inherit the universe. We, we, we inherit all things. It's just a matter of time. So be encouraged, Christian. God is sovereign over all of the days. He is sovereign over the already, and He's sovereign over the not yet. He is the author of the story. Let's pray. O ancient of days, we consider your eternity, your unbounded by time and space. You are indeed God. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. We are not that. We are bound. We are limited. We are finite creatures. We are always and, and, and forever limited by moments and successive moments. We are, we are not able to see the way you see. We are not wise as you are wise. And so we trust you. We trust you when we don't understand, when we're struggling, when, even when we're appalled. That we, look, we look at this world and we're just like, man, what is going on? What a mess. Lord, we trust you. You are at work. You are good. You are sovereign. You are bringing to pass your good plan, both on the days where the sun shines bright and the stormiest of days that are black as night. We trust you. Strengthen our trust and our resolve. Like Daniel, Lord, we wrestle. Sometimes it's hard. But Lord, find a, find a place for us. Help us to stand in strength, to move forward, to persevere in faith, and to trust you, the ancient of days. Thank you that you meet us with sustaining grace, grace all-sufficient. It's there for us day by day. Lord, we are weak. We are needy, but you are strong. And you minister to us in that strength. Thank you for the gospel, our confidence that we are yours, come what may. We are yours forever, in this life and the next. We say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.